Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast. The book of Romans is truly one of the high peaks of the Bible. It is an intimidating mountain to climb, but the view from the top is well worth it. In the first four chapters, we hear that all have sinned, but the Apostle Paul takes us to the heart of why Jesus is such good news. We discover that his gospel changes everything about how we see the world. It means peace, it promises holiness, it beckons us to freedom, and it calls for love. For more information and audio content, please visit us at neac.com.au. I'm Danny. I'm going to be bringing you the first Bible reading, uh, which is Isaiah 51, uh, 1 to 8, on page 728. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have my law in your hearts. Do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. We're now going to read from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and that's on page 1,112. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, and you also among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's good to be here with you as we begin Romans. I've never drunk Grange Hermitage. Uh, or Maybe you can talk to Roger about that, but I'll take his word for it. That that's what Romans is like. Um, but we are beginning a sermon series on the book of Romans uh, tonight. Uh, for now, we're only looking at chapters 1 to 4, and that'll take us a couple of months. Um, yet we're committing to far more than that, actually, because our plan is to work through the entire letter of Romans in stages, we'll take breaks in between, over the next couple of years. It's a significant thing that we're setting out on. Uh, as one commentator puts it, Romans dwarfs most of Paul's other writings. An alpine peak towering over hills and villages. Not all onlookers are viewed it in the same light or from the same angle, and their snapshots and paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unalike. Not all climbers have taken the same route up its sheer side, and there is frequent disagreement on the best approach. What nobody doubts, says this commentator, is that we are here dealing with a work of massive substance, presenting a formidable intellectual challenge. Crikey. Romans will be a challenge, and, and I wonder if you're thinking, is it worth it? At a simple level, it will probably involve, if you come to church often, about 30-odd hours of your time listening to sermons, plus much more time studying it in small groups, if you're part of them. Uh, for the staff and the ministry team, it, it'll be a lot more time than that as we read and, and think and write and try to grapple with the meaning of this text, a time that your generosity makes possible. Um, and that comes at the expense of doing other things. So is it, is it worth it? Might we not be better off doing something a little less demanding? Perhaps we could preach shorter, lighter sermons that take less time to prepare. Might we not be better off using our resources for other things? After all, there are many pressing challenges before us as a church and as people. Is this a mountain we really want to climb? 
Perhaps we should stick to day walks and cafes with wilderness views, that kind of take on church. Well, these are important questions. Uh, And of course, you know, we're we're not actually going to know the answer until we get to the end and look back on it. Uh, And in fact, not even then, because it's only the last day that will disclose uh, whether our efforts have truly been worth it and what they've actually achieved And yet, in this opening passage that we read, Romans chapter 1, which would be great to have before you, uh, we're going to work through Romans 1, 1 to 17, we get some hints in this opening passage of what might make this endeavour worthwhile. For in these verses, we get a glimpse into some of the deep theological ideas that underpin this letter. And in particular, the way it opens up the heart of the gospel for us in a really powerful way. And this gives us an inkling, I think, of why this effort might be worth it. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, Romans chapter 1. And let's start by asking, what is this thing in our Bibles called Romans? Well, it is most basically a letter. Uh, More specifically, it's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And it begins in the way ancient letters did, with an introduction of the author and its recipients. Have a look there, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. What is an apostle? Basically, an apostle is like a founding father of the Christian church. Uh, They were the leaders specifically called by Jesus to begin, kick off his church. Um. So Paul, he says, is an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That is, he's to proclaim it. Now in verse 2, he goes on to briefly describe the content of the gospel. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared to, with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's quite significant what he says there, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, For now, let's just stay with Paul's introduction of himself. Verse 5, he says, Through him and for his name's sake, that is Jesus' name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. Gentiles are just non-Jews. Not that important a distinction in our world sometimes, but it was then. Among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. That phrase, the obedience that comes from faith, is significant. It comes up again right at the end of Romans. Um, And we get a snapshot there, I think, into what Paul was on about. He was a missionary seeking to see as many Gentiles as possible one to Christian faith. And not just to mere faith, mere belief, but to the changed life that flows out of faith, the obedience that comes from faith. Paul probably wrote Romans around AD AD, 57, AD 57, about 24 years after Jesus uh, was crucified. Um, And it was at the end of about 20 years of his own missionary work. He was in Greece, probably in Corinth, uh, on his way to Jerusalem, to wind up a significant stage in his missionary work. And he had plans to keep going. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to a church he was intending to visit on the next stage of his work, but he'd never actually visited himself before. 
And we learn about this church from verse 6. Have a look there. And you also, he says, are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. When he says among those, I think he's talking about among those Gentiles. See, Romans is a letter written to a Gentile church. That is, it's a church that could basically be seen as Gentile in character. That said, it wasn't exclusively made up of Gentiles. It's very clear that there were Jews in the congregation as well. And as we'll see as we go through Romans, that dynamic of Jew and Gentile is actually very important. Tensions and issues between Jew and Gentile underlie a lot of what Paul writes in this letter. These tensions were a big thing for earliest Christianity. Uh, Christianity, of course, emerged out of Judaism. In fact, in its earliest days, it just was a form of Judaism. And yet by welcoming Gentiles in, non-Jews in, and not demanding that they become Jews. See, that's what the Christians did. They, They welcomed Gentiles and they didn't say, they said they didn't have to become Jews. By doing that, tensions quickly arose about what the relation of this new version of the faith of Israel was to its Jewish background. And whether this Christian faith was becoming corrupted and polluted and compromised. Uh, Now, we suspect that these tensions were heightened by an odd historical circumstance. In AD 49, uh, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from the city of Rome. Um, And this would have meant that the young Christian church, which had almost certainly started from the synagogue and, and was very Jewish, suddenly found itself made up of purely Gentiles. But then, within about five years, Claudius's order was abandoned and the Jews came back. So at the time Paul wrote this letter, in AD 57, he's writing to a church that's experienced a very challenging decade. It had suddenly lost most of its leaders and become much more monocultural. And then they'd all come back again. And I think you can imagine, actually, that that would be complicated uh, for any community. As we get to the later parts of Romans, we'll see more about what these these tensions involved. And yet it doesn't seem like things had fallen apart, at least not yet. Uh, Paul continues in verse 8, as you'll see there, on a very positive note. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. You see, Paul's overall attitude is extremely positive. Now, as I said, this is a church he'd never personally visited. But his great desire was that that would be able to change. Verse 11, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. And then he clarifies, he's not talking about just kind of laying down the law or coming in and fixing everything. He says, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I love that phrase, actually. I love that uh, attitude towards ministry, this mutual encouragement. He stresses that his plan to visit them is not new. Verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I I plan many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now. 
in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. Now, why this constant emphasis on the Gentiles? Well, it's because Paul saw the task he'd been given as being especially about Gentiles. Uh, We'll see a lot more about this later in Romans, uh, and you can read the background if you want in the book of Acts. But he makes it plain here too. In verse 14, he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that is, to all different types of Gentiles. And then he says, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Rome, you see, Rome mattered to him because it was the heart of the Gentile world. And he was a debtor to all of the Gentile world. That is, he had a debt of service to pay that kept gnawing at him and and pressing him on. As we'll see right toward the end of Romans, Paul's plan was to continue his missionary work after he went to Jerusalem. He was going to journey first to Rome and then on to Spain, where there were enormous unreached mission opportunities. Romans, you see, is above all a missionary letter. It is a letter that makes sense only as as part of the Apostle Paul's missionary efforts to win Gentiles to faith in Jesus. In many ways, this letter is an explanation and defense of his missionary work. It's just worth having in mind as we go through it. Now, that's also why the other thing that happens in this introductory passage is that we get glimpses of some deep and powerful thinking about the gospel. Uh, You'll have noticed them on the way through. We get a few hints that what is coming in this letter is a, a kind of deep exploration of what the gospel means. Paul mentions the gospel, uh, a word that just means, gospel just means the good news or, or the message. He mentions it a bunch of times, verse 1, 9, 15, 16. And that signals that a key purpose uh, of, of his in Romans is to clarify and explain some of the deep logic of the gospel the message that he's been and is going to continue proclaiming in his missionary work. Is that clear? Okay, so what glimpses then do we get into the theology of the gospel? You see them where I'm going on your outlines, the second half. Um, what glimpses do we get into the theology of the gospel Paul's going to explore in this letter? Well, he says three things about the gospel. First, he says something about the content of the gospel. Second, he says something about the nature of the gospel. And third, he says something about the meaning of the gospel. Those headings are not perfect, but you'll know what I mean by the end of the sermon. Okay, first, the content of the gospel. After verse 2, as we saw, Paul does this little aside where he describes the gospel. The gospel, he says, was promised by the prophets. That is, in the old, what we know as the Old Testament, but in his day was just the Bible. And it is about... It concerns Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Paul goes out of his way to identify Jesus in a very particular way. And what he does is he stresses that Jesus is the king. As a man, he says he was a descendant of David. David was Israel's greatest king and the one who kind of represented the Messiah, But Jesus is is more than just a human king. Through the spirit of holiness, he says, he was declared with power 
to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God's Son and King, enthroned with power. This, says Paul, is what the gospel concerns, what it is about. I wonder if this is what you're expecting, Paul, to talk about here. Is this the first thing that comes into your mind when you think, you know, what is the gospel about? How Jesus has become king. I reckon, actually, it's not the first thing we always think of. Often we jump straight to other things. We, things about, say, what the gospel means for us and how it means salvation and forgiveness and life. Now, as we'll see, Romans is very much about these things, very much about these things. But we should notice that they are not the first things Paul says about the gospel. The first thing he says about the gospel is that it is about Jesus. First and foremost, you see, the good news of the Christian faith is about him. Jesus, the Lord, about how God has set his king on the throne. It's actually only secondarily about us and why that is good news for us. That said, though, there's no doubt that it is good news for us. And that is gloriously clear. And the second thing Paul says about the nature of the gospel in verse 16, uh, we'll stay with these last two verses now. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The gospel, the good news about Jesus is the power of God for salvation. That's what it is. This message, this announcement, these words about Jesus are the means by which God himself is working to bring about salvation, to save people, men and women. The way Paul says this is pretty striking, I think. He, he's utterly convinced, you see, that This message, this news about Jesus is not just an empty fact. It's not just a piece of information that, you know, people can take or leave. No, it is God's divine power for salvation. This message does things. It carries strength, the strength of God's spirit, which can break down the powers of evil and rescue people from their clutches. Again, we've got to ask, is that how we think about the gospel? Do you think, do you think about it as, as, as it's powerful? And more than this, the gospel is this power, says Paul, for everyone who believes. That is, it's not just for some groups of people. It, it's God's power of salvation for the whole human race. The proclamation of Jesus is not a merely local or tribal act of God. It is his plan for the whole world. Uh, We should also note, though, this is a bit of an aside, but we should note that there's an order to this. Did you see those words, first for the Jew, then for the Greek? That is a thought that we need to keep in mind as we go. Romans will expand upon it. Uh, But what we're going to see is that on the one hand, the gospel makes Jew and Greek radically equal because they're all alike under sin and all alike in need of grace. And yet on the other hand... 
Actually, what we find out is that the gospel doesn't nullify the history of Israel. No, actually, just as the gospel was promised in the Holy Scriptures, in the prophets, the people of Israel retain a certain honour. More on that in weeks to come, just another flag for the future. Uh, But finally, though, in verse 17, Paul explains something of how the gospel has this saving power. He gives us a little preview of the meaning of the gospel. And if if you're starting to tune out, tune back in now, because this last verse is crucial for what's coming. At about this point in in this sermon this morning, uh, my daughter, who is... Uh, in, uh, often in the crèche area over there in the morning, she just stood up and said, Daddy, stop talking. Uh, there you go. I think she wanted just me to come and play with her, but you never know. Verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, that is a dense sentence, is it not? I hope you think it's dense. And it's okay, actually, to feel a little out of your depth suddenly. As I said, part of the point of these initial comments in in Romans 1 is that they're hints. They give us a taste of where we're going, but they don't answer all our questions. Paul is leading us on a journey here. We've started climbing a mountain, and it's like we've come to a very early lookout And we get a glimpse of what we are going to see from the top, but we can't see everything clearly yet, and that's all right, actually. That said, though, there are two parts of this statement that we need to unpack. First, the phrase about a righteousness from God needs comment. Now, unfortunately, this is one point uh, at which the translation that we use in church, the 1984 NIV, which is really very good in, in many ways, Uh, But it lets us down a little here. Uh, The phrase in the original is literally the righteousness of God. Not a righteousness from God, but the righteousness of God. And that's actually how almost every other English translation has it, including the update of the NIV in 2011. And that makes a difference. Because the righteousness of God makes it sound like Paul is saying something First and foremost, about God. And he is, I think. What Paul is saying here is that in the gospel, something remarkable about God has been unveiled. And this something is God's righteousness. What, though, is God's righteousness? Uh, Well, again, part of the answer is we're going to need to wait and see. Part of the point of Romans is to show us, but there are a couple of things we can say. First, it's important to know that in the Greek, the word translated righteousness, the Greek word dikaiosene, it also means justice. The Greek just has one word for righteousness and justice. It's this word, dikaiosene. It's a word that is associated with ideas of law courts and judgments. So when you see righteousness, don't just think kind of moral goodness. It's a kind of judicial word. And what Paul is saying here is that the gospel reveals something like God's justice. Secondly, it's helpful to know that this idea of God's righteousness or justice, it has roots in the Old Testament. 
Um, Our first reading was a passage that I think captures some of the sense of it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 51. If you've got a Bible, turn to it because it's it's a terrific passage. Isaiah 51. Can somebody give me a page number when you get there? 729. Isaiah 51. I don't know if you noticed when it was read the slightly odd-sounding way in which the word righteousness was used there. Uh, But have a look with me from verse 5. This is God speaking, and he says, verse 5, My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. What's fascinating there is the way in which God's righteousness is something that is something that's going to happen. Something that is coming, that draws near, and so it can be paralleled with salvation. God's righteousness, you see, is not just an abstract quality he possesses. It's something that God does, something he enacts. And so again, down in verse 6 there of Isaiah 51, it's something that has a lasting benefit for his people. At the end of the verse there, it says, But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail We should think of God's righteousness, you see, more like the justice he will bring, if I can put it that way, or the order of righteousness that his righteous character guarantees will happen. Do you get what I'm saying? It's a kind of active sense. Actually, the English word justice can have this active sense. If I said, you know, the sheriff's justice, um, we could mean what the sheriff is going to do to enact justice, the justice he's going to bring, you know, to get rid of the bad cowboys or whatever. You know what I mean? The sheriff's justice is something that's going to happen. The righteousness of God, you see, is not just something God is, it's, it's also something that he does, something even that he gives. Now, you may have noticed that this means... That our original translation, a righteousness from God, is not actually that bad after all. Because when it says a righteousness from God, it does kind of catch the idea that God's righteousness is something that he enacts. Something that brings about a new situation. And which in fact means righteousness for us too. God's righteousness is his saving righteousness, his, his bringing in of justice. That means life for us. So, Andrew, did we really need that excruciating journey? Well, perhaps not, but I think we did. I think the righteousness of God is still a much better phrase to have in mind. Uh, but wait till chapter 3 before you're convinced of that. Okay, that's the righteousness of God. The other part of this statement in verse 17 that needs unpacking is what it says about faith. The righteousness of God, says Paul, is by faith from first to last. Now, you'll see if you look closely that there's a footnote after that phrase uh, that, that says it could be translated from faith to faith. Do you see the footnote if you're looking at it there? Very small. Uh, that's actually literally what the Greek says, from faith to faith. But the problem with that is what on earth does that mean? It's incredibly dense. And so the translators have gone with by faith from first to last. And for what it's worth, I think that's actually a very good effort. 
Paul's point here is, I think, primarily that God's righteousness comes to us, that is, we get to share in it by faith and nothing else. This will be one of the great themes of of Romans, that our salvation, our justification, our being put in the right with God, it comes to us only by faith, that is, by our trusting in God. It is God's free gift and is not something that we can earn or deserve or ever have a right to. Salvation is the gift of God in Christ and so comes to us by faith from beginning to end, from first to last. Okay, so the two big ideas in this passage, in this verse then, the saving righteousness of God on the one hand and faith on the other. They come together in this final quotation that you see at the end there that Paul concludes with. And it's actually from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. Now, as if we needed further complication, you may have noticed that this, it's actually an ambiguous phrase. It could mean, on the one hand, that those who are righteous will live their lives by faith. And that's true. And that's what Romans is about, in a way. Or it could mean, on the other hand, that those who are righteous by faith will have eternal life. And that's also true. And that's also what Romans is about. Um, But it doesn't really matter. Because either way, what we get a glimpse of is, is the great gospel theme of Romans, of how God has given life back to us in the righteousness that comes through faith. Okay, well, let's bring things to a close. I began by asking whether this climb we were beginning of working through Romans was really worth it. Uh, And we've now scrambled over the first few rocks, uh, and you may be wondering that uh, as well. I remember when I did the Cradle Mountain Walk, and right at the beginning of the Cradle Mountain Walk, you've got to do this really difficult climb. And you think, crikey, if I have another five days of this, that will be bad. Um, but, you know, it got easier after that, and so might Romans. Fingers crossed. Is this difficult book, Romans, worth bothering with? Well, we see an answer, I think, in Paul's claim in verse 16, which we've already read but which we'll see again now. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. And then he goes on to say why, with the ideas that we've been looking at, which, as we've seen, are really the tips of massive icebergs of profound reflection on the truths of the gospel. And Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because of what he knows about the gospel because of what he wrote Romans to explain about the gospel, because he knows that it's God's power of salvation for all and how it reveals God's righteousness through faith. It's almost as if these words here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's almost as if they are what Romans has done to him. They are the effect that the ideas he's writing about have had on him. The truths he set down to write to the church at Rome about the gospel, they have made him unashamed of it. 
So let me ask you then, as we begin our series, are you ashamed of the gospel? Can you say what Paul says here? Or let me turn the question round, actually, because it's sometimes easy to, to not, a question like that, to not really just think, no, no, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But let me ask, are you proud of the gospel? Are you, are you proud of the gospel? Is your faith in Jesus, your Christian beliefs, something you are you know, really proud of? Well, what would that look like? Uh, I don't want to oversimplify. It's going to look different for different kinds of people and different personalities. You know, I think we all know what it would like to be proud of the gospel. We know what it's like to be proud of things. Think of something or someone you're really delighted about, proud of, proud to be associated with. What's that like? It's where it's a, a, a joy to talk about, isn't it? It's when you're, you're kind of thrilled when it comes up in conversation. It's something you're really happy for others to know about you. It's a badge of honor. Is that what the gospel, the Bible's message about Jesus, is like for you? Are you proud of it? Now, you know, I suspect for many of us the answer is no or not really. I suspect many of us actually secretly feel a little embarrassed about our faith. We're nervous about people finding out at, at work or at college or wherever, we, we, and we have to kind of summon the courage to mention that we went to church. I include myself in this. I sometimes find myself wanting to subtly hide the Bible when I carry it around Newtown. You know, I often meet with people in cafes and just wander down with the Bible, and I kind of think, ooh, Bible... Looks a bit funny. But, you know, I don't want this to make you feel bad or guilty. I mean, you can, we can work that out later, right? But I don't just put that off for the moment. I think, actually, if you feel like this, it should make us feel curious. Curious as to why Paul feels different. Because he was a human being like us. He was up against opposition What is it that's got him to an attitude like this? And this, you see, is why it's worth reading Romans. Because maybe the reason we don't feel more pride in the gospel is because we have lost sight of what it it really is. What it really means and how... How astonishingly wonderful it actually is. As we looked at the glimpses we get of what's coming in the letter, can I ask you, were there things that you didn't understand? Or that you haven't put in that perspective? Or that you haven't thought about for a while? Or that have slipped from your mind? If there were, fantastic. That should make you curious. Because maybe the reason... We're perhaps a little ashamed of our faith sometimes or don't take the chance to speak about it is that we have forgotten or lost sight of the glorious thing that has been revealed. 
Brothers and sisters, I urge you, as we begin this series and we set out on this climb, to throw yourself into it. Because the view from the top is spectacular. And it can make the difference between a Christian faith that is a little embarrassed and one that is unashamed. Let me invite you, let me invite us to pursue together a deeper understanding of the gospel and see what difference that makes in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the message of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the King who died and was raised by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we ask that over the coming weeks and months and maybe even years, you would deepen our understanding of the gospel so that we would not be ashamed of it, but filled with its beauty and delighted to be put at its service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.